I was hoping we could really just kick it off with a recap of this sort of meteoric first six months. Uh, I use that six months as kind of, you know, the, 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 the shot across the bow of people at Sotheby's and uh, um, in how that just drove a craze, you know, entrance into this space, uh, unlike I think anything that's ever come before it in our history. This episode of Ars Cryptoctica is brought to you by Uptick Project, the NFT world in your hand. Uptick is a decentralized mobile app built on top of the Uptick protocol. Manage your NFT-based digital assets with a focus on entertainment, sports, and the creative industry. Whatever your need for NFTs, Uptick has you covered. This is episode 20 of NFT podcast, Ars Cryptoctica. We have a very special guest today, uh, Nathan from Super Rare. Uh, Henry, can you kick us off? I'll kick us off. I'm going to kick the ball right over into the court of this fine gentleman who's joining us today. Uh, as you said, uh, one of the um, proud and hardworking and supportive uh, members of the Super Rare team. Uh, I would like to start by giving you an, a moment to just break down your uh, position at Super Rare, and we'll go from there. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's it's an honor to be here. You know, if you asked me, if you told me 10 years ago that I would be selling art and telling the stories of artists, I would be like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Don't really believe it, but that sounds cool. Um, and now, now that I'm here and that I get to do it, it's just... Every day I wake up and I'm like, I can't believe I get to do this. I can't believe I get to talk to incredible artists. I can't believe I get to talk to up and coming artists. I can't believe people come to me for advice for this stuff. Like it's, it's really, really, I'm very fortunate to be in the position that I'm in. And, you know, speaking of that position, I'm a, I'm head of content over at super rare. So essentially what that means is I do all the video content um, and kind of the execution of that video content. So uh, my coworker, Phil, he does most of the strategy. So it's kind of the two of us planning what we're going to be doing and how we're going to be doing it and who we're going to be talking to and all that. So my position is really, I've kind of taken this position that I believe this story of what's going on now in crypto, NFTs, blockchain, this whole industry needs to be recorded because these stories that are happening now every single day, like even even the things on Twitter, like, oh, everyone says good morning, say it back now. You know, that type of thing has just been kind of like a very niche Internet thing for a very long time. And it seems so inconsequential, but it means the world to people and people see good morning and it's maybe two letters, but it means the world. So these small things that traditionally would probably go under the radar and the annals of history, I, I feel like we we should be recording this and what it means to everybody. So something so small as that and something as big as the story of people, Fuocious, you know, Sotheby's a huge auction house taking on these artists is huge and that should also be recorded. But how do we, how do we know what to record? How do we record it? How do we, you know, tell this story to our grandkids? How do we tell this story to people alive now that don't really know what's going on? How do we shape this narrative that's, constantly changing every single day and that's essentially what my job is is to find ways to do that and it's it's not easy but it's it makes it easier when the stories that are being have to be told are incredible stories so um 
my my job would be nothing if not for the people in this in this community. Yeah, and, and to point out, I mean, I think you're right that the character of the community is is kind of unprecedented. And when I discussed the, this idea of the character or of a, the collective identity of the NFT space, you know, I'm, 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 I always like to tell young artists and spaces on Twitter, which I, I think is a revolution unto itself, it, it has taken Clubhouse to the next level, um, that those uh, conversations are documented by um, the system itself and can be pulled for a historical record and saved uh, off Twitter is, a, you know, was a genius move. My hat's off to Twitter for that. And a lot of, of, you know, the heads of spaces, people in the spaces that are doing great work as leaders of spaces are pulling them and are uh, archiving them. So that's getting done. Uh, but, you know, when you talk to these young artists, as I do every day, you get the sense that they're overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of knowledge and the sort of dialogical nature in, in all of its grandeur of the spaces, that they can enter a space and they can behold in-depth conversations and, uh, you know, art historical critiques and sort of, you know, a little lessons of art history or, you know, it could be something as simple as, you know, like there's a woman, Kamachi, whose space is focused on confidence. And she wakes up every day and does it seven days a week. She ingratiates herself to young artists who are terrified to come up and speak. And she just breaks down as she does have a psychology background and helps them to, to negotiate their fears and to learn a way of confidence that will enable them to, to, to grow their art platform in the social media realm. Uh, because, you know, not everybody is comfortable talking. And so the one thing I like to always tell them is that you, you would have to pay $100,000 and go to RISD uh, to have the experience that you can ha now have for free every day in the spaces. That is, it is overwhelmingly populated by brilliant young minds and older minds as well, but that you have this influx of art students that are maybe a year, two years, three years out of art school, and they're bringing their wealth of recent education to the spaces. Even if they lack confidence, they are well-versed in it, at the very least in the last 20 to 30 years of the contemporary art movements. And so, you know, that's edifying. It's, it's making a huge difference in the sort of collective knowledge base and, you know, my personal focus in every group that I attend is always to bring to bear, you know, art historical relevance of works that are being in discussed. So I just wanted to point that out and see what you had, to, uh, if you had anything you'd like to contribute about the, the spaces and these, this collective conversation that's unfolding daily. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, traditionally, when we think of, of art history, we learn, we learn art history in school, right? I, I didn't go to school for that. I know very little about art history on paper. Um, and, and yet I feel so many other artists now and collectors now are the same way. Like the number of people that are in this space, I doubt I may, maybe a fraction of them actually went to school for it. And yet we're learning all of this in real time. And even though, even the people who went to school to learn art history, this is brand new territory for them it kind of like crypto art kind of defies a lot of what art history on the, on the surface level, obviously deep down, there's many similarities and, and parallels, but 
how many people have you talked to in crypto art that have zero art history education that have um, maybe not even traditional schooling if they are artists? I, I think what this space has allowed people to do is truly make art and collect art unencumbered by the history of art itself, which then begets a new, totally new forms of art that have no real ties to anything in the past. And it's just this free expression that is even freer than what we had before in, in traditional art. And it's, it's really wild to see because so many mediums that we see now in, in crypto art are, I don't know. I mean, I talked to, uh, when I was in Paris, I talked to a few different artists and one of them, Ohan, he's a, uh, he's like a, what he referred to, he used to refer to himself as a, as a motion graphics designer or, you know, just what his technical job was. He didn't consider himself an artist until he found crypto art and started selling his work on super rare and started, you know, finding collectors and that like, he finally realized that he is an artist. And I think there's so much of that happening now. And it's so beautiful because so many of these people that make art, whether it's animation or illustration or painting or motion graphics, or even just like, you know, CGI 3d stuff, everyone who makes art is an artist, just like I I'm a photographer and anybody with, this is very controversial. I've said it before, but anybody with a camera that takes photos is a photographer. You can be a varying level of photographer. You can be a specific type of photographer, but just because you don't have like a Leica or you don't, you're not in galleries or you don't develop and, and print your own works doesn't mean you're not a photographer. And I think that when we embrace this terminology that has traditionally been siloed for educated people or um, people with backgrounds in art, it, it will allow for even more free expression of in, in the true form of art than what we have had in the past. And I think that's beautiful. Oh, it is beautiful. Well, in what you see is sort of the Beeple effect. And Beeple, you know, he kind of frame story the, the whole revolution by the fact of the title of his work being the first 5,000 days, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and he did that because the whole story of the crypto art or the NFT art is that for the first time in any real way in the history of art, you you have an entire other field of of technology that can come to bear in such a way that there's that provenance the provenance was the issue and you know and people expressed that every every chance he could that he was always an artist but it wasn't until he could guarantee the one of one that that became a valuable work of art it wasn't that he wasn't making the same art prior to that day it was that prior to his you know on-ramp to the nft world the documentation and the legitimacy of its provenance from him to the first collector and then thereafter in the secondary market that that documentation changed everything. So like what you said, the techies, people that from that whole other branch of creativity, people that are in, in Illustrator, in Photoshop, in, in, in frame animation and, you know, up to and including people like Tori Bryant, who was, uh, you know, an Oscar award winning illustrator in the in the uh, in the animation industry. You know, the people like that all of a sudden could enter the realm of collective collectible art. And it wasn't that they weren't already making work worthy of collection. It just now 
we can guarantee that that work is the work intended to be sold by that particular artist. And that's, that is the revolution, really. I mean, it, that's the start of it. Where it goes, really? watch. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you say that. It's, it's almost like a revolution of provenance more than it is of art itself, right? I mean, yeah. not actually. I, I don't think it's, I, I think it's definitely an art revolution, but I think that one main pillar of, that revo- of this revolution is provenance, right? We finally yes. have the, the story recorded immutably forever and nobody can say otherwise like it's it's interesting i'm i'm working on the side project that is um that kind of aims to bring provenance to a very overlooked realm of art and that is of food and cooking and i mean traditionally when we look at recipes you can't patent a recipe you can't trademark a recipe you kind of just have to hope that people know where it started from and even then recipes have been passed down for generations and centuries right but how do we bring provenance to recipes and i think that that's creating a nft cookbook i think that's creating nft recipes that can be sold as recipes or given away whatever but as long as you have that provenance that you know somebody put them put it on chain and this is the first instance of this recipe then it's not legally binding like you don't probably can't have like rights to it because there's i don't think i don't think recipes have like ip attached to them um or the laws i don't really think apply to them but it's not really about the legal side of things right it's just about the story and the provenance to say well here's proof that this was mine and i put this on and that goes for anything that's put on chain right and that's also where i think there is there's a, a big issue with plagiarism because it's not just putting your work on on chain it's also you know the verifiable ownership in the community like does the community agree that this is that this is the original creator of this work or is it just somebody who put somebody else's work on on chain and that's where the community has I, I've seen rally the strongest is behind artists and the true creators of, of work. And that's, that's why this community I think has grown so quickly and is so, so, so important is because it serves a very real purpose for verification. This community is so important because it essentially acts as a validator for true, for the artists and the true creators of works. And it's, it's it's beautiful. I don't really think many people talk about that. It's it's kind of what we're seeing right in front of our faces. Why is Twitter blowing up with conversations about art? Why are people, you know, creating these communities around different artists or around collectors or around um, projects? It's it's inadvertently to for validation and verification of who these true true creators are in in the community. I agree. So how would you describe the first six months? Well, the last six months, let's say, because I suppose you could go back farther. But I mean, I feel like, again, that shot across the bow and what it how it sort of radicalized interest in the in the space. What have you felt about the past six months? What was the ride like for you? Man, it's been it's been simultaneously meteoric. It's been um Like I said earlier, every single day I wake up and I'm thankful that I get to do what I get to do. And 
I've done many different things in my life. You know, I've, I've done neuroscience. I've done cooking. I've done, um, I was a candle maker for a bit. I worked at a dispensary. Like I've done so many different things and yet none of them really felt like I belong there. I mean, it was something that I did and I did it to the fullest of, of my ability, extent to my ability, but I never felt like, oh man, I'm some days I'd wake up and I'm like, I can't believe I still have to do this. And yet the last six months have felt like the last six months at super have felt like I finally found what I meant to do. I finally found the community that I meant to be a part of. I have finally found a, a workplace that feels like I'm building it with everybody else at that same workplace rather than just being an employee um, or rather than just building it myself to, you know, to brick, screaming at brick walls for the things that I was doing. This feels like actual work and building and community building. And just, I don't know, every single day I wake up and I'm thankful that I've woken up and that I get to do what I get to do. And that's, that really hasn't changed in six months. I felt that on day one, I feel that on, on day, day 180, let's say. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I get to, I get to travel. I get to meet up with artists. I get to tell stories. I get to hear stories. I get to, um, I get to create on my own, um, with my, with the work that I do at super rare, I definitely consider it, um, creativity in and of itself. Um, it's, it's very interesting. No two days are the same. Um, no one day is better than the other. They are all in, in, insurmountably amazing. It's insane. I've never thought I would say this. And I have this very real fear, you know, throughout the past 10, 20 years, I wouldn't find what I was meant to do. And, you know, be it neuroscience or be it candle making or be it starting an oat milk company, whatever it was, I thought in that moment, oh, man, this is cool. Maybe I'll get to do this for the rest of my life. But I never felt like tied to it. But this, I feel like this is actually where I feel happiest. I feel strongest. I feel most creative. It's it's outrageous. Well, thank you. And so I have a, a large community that's interested in um, hearing about the process of, of onboarding your artists from day one. Uh, how has that gone? Um, it, what were the challenges? What, what were the experiences that were sort of teachable moments for you? Uh, how did you discover what worked best and, and what needed to be rethought? So I came on in March and we were, you know, Super has kind of been, had already been a pretty big name at that point. And I remember looking at Super Air. I applied to Super Air as a photographer in like September of 2020. And I didn't hear back. And I was like, okay, you know, it's kind of what it is. I minted on another platform, um, just a photo that I had. This is actually my my real first photo that I ever minted. I kind of just did it to, to use the technology. And when I got on Super Air, as a, as an employee, I got on as an employee before I got on as an artist. And I think that what I, what I realized and what I learned from talking to everyone on the team and seeing what artists were being accepted, why and when and how, and, and all that. Um, I, I realized that super rare is, is really meant for artists that are not fully developed, but they have a voice and they've found their voice and their work reflects 
who they are as artists. Um, I think it is the pinnacle of of NFT crypto art platforms for art. It's all one of one art. It's um, artists who have a style that is discernible that if you see their work, you're like, oh, that's definitely Fuocious or oh, that's definitely Parrot or, you know, it's definitely Coldy. And m- many, many other platforms I feel are exist for people to use the technology. I love OpenSea because I think that what they do is it's literally an open sea. Anybody can use it. Anybody can get in on this technology and, and mint something. In many ways, it is like screaming into the void, but I feel like you kind of have to do that to get started, um, especially if you're an artist or a new artist or somebody who is still trying to find their voice. Um, I went through that same thing. I went through, I've been shooting photographs since you know for probably almost 20 i think like 18 years or something like like that digital and film and yet still when i applied to super rare as i was trying to curate my own work and what i was going to submit i was like you know i just have thousands of photos and i don't really know i can't curate curate my own work i I don't know what to look for and what to show people i just have this repository of photos that i've taken over the years and it wasn't until I started working there that I realized, oh, okay, well, this is probably belongs with this. And I would kind of go through my own stuff. And th- but now through this lens of perspective of other artists and other photographers and how they do it. And I, I mean, when I talk to artists now, when I talk to artists who, you know, I'm not on the curation team, so I don't have any say in who gets on or who doesn't. Um, I tell them that I tell them the same thing. I say, have you found your voice? I ask them genuinely, like be, be introspective. Have you found a true artistic voice for yourself? And if you have find that connection in your work, and those are the pieces that you submit for the, for the artist submission for super rare, tell the story of what these artworks are, tell the story of what your artist, personal artist history is and what, what you plan on doing in the future. And I feel like that's just a good exercise for any artist in general to do. And I feel like whether it's for a submission or an application to a platform or not, artists should be self-reflecting often and they should be looking at their own work and saying, okay, well, you know, this is a time when I was doing this style or this is a time when I was using this, this medium or, um, and this is kind of the the consistence that I've found while making that style, um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. I feel like there's with, with blockchain and with governance and with um, the openness of everything, anybody can mint. Sure. Yes. Completely agree. You, you can, you can, anybody can mint their artwork, the platforms and the curation of things. I think there's a very big distinction between gatekeeping and curation. I think that with curation, with gatekeeping, it's just like, it's, often kind of nefarious it's either nepotism or it's who has money or who's popular and and stuff like that when it comes to curation especially on super rare it's strictly about the art i you know it's not about who you are necessarily it's not about where you come from it's not about um anything like that it's not about who you know it's super rare um i've had plenty of very close friends who are artists be like hey can you get me on super Rare now that you work there i'm like genuinely i can't I, I cannot do that. And it's not because I don't want to. It's not because I, I'm not like, I don't love you. It's because it's, that's not really what this is about. It's about 
finding the artists and the artwork that are there that are ready to be on a platform that is curated. So, I mean, the same as in Maker's Place, same as with any other application process. I just feel like Super Rare has not compromised in any way who they let on. It's always and will forever be about the art and the artists themselves. So it's, well, it's really an inter- interesting conversation uh, to have with people. It, it certainly is. I, one of the things I find fascinating about the crypto art movement is that you know, if you look back, say, from from today, going back to Andy Warhol through um, through his factory days and his sensibility of the commodification of art and the factory, uh, you know, the sort of factory blueprint and how that gave birth to the pop movement and the pop movement gave birth to a very, very powerful shift in the collector. So where once it was thought that the gatekeepers were the curating teams at museums, um, unfortunately, for a period up to about, uh, say, in the last five years, um, the collector became the gatekeeper, it, it, you know, through the traditional art market um, exchanges like Sotheby's and what was determined great and what was determined collectible was sort of like left to the hands of billionaires. And, and that's sort of been taken back by the power of curation, which you just discussed uh, eloquently, I feel like curation is once again front and center. And because now the collector is also the idea of anonymity and and identity uh, that's associated with the space, right? Whether it's the identities of the artists or it's the identities of the collectors, there's kind of the, you know, the, the phenomenon of the avatar has taken hold. And, and, and part of that anonymity is the empowerment, I, I believe, the empowerment of leveling the playing field where the art speaks for itself because it's less about the persona of the artist as it is about the power of the collection. So because of that, now the power has shifted back to curatorial teams like yours at Super Rare. And I just wonder how you feel about that notion of taking back the power of you know, curatorial decision in, in defining what matters and in defining um, where we're going. One of the most interesting aspects of curation that I've seen is in many ways, there's, there's a lot of community curation now. There's infinite amounts of galleries you can create in the metaverse. There is infinite amount of communities you can build on Twitter. Um, it's, it's, it, while it takes it out of the hands of the billionaires and it takes it out of the hands of the people who have traditionally collected art for many years, it doesn't compromise on what is collected or what is curated. And I think, in fact, it, it even opens it, opens it up to more possibilities. Let's say an artist wants to remain anonymous or an artist isn't really good with people or an artist just wants to remain quietly creating in their in their uh, studio it you don't have to be allowed persona you don't have to have relationships with billionaires you don't have to have relationships with galleries because we're we're creating new galleries now we're creating new relationships we're creating new um collectors and i feel like a lot of these collectors that are coming out now are are creating their own galleries and and collecting what they see fit and it's in many ways, it's ragtag people. It's people who have found a lot of money in crypto. It's 
tech people who have found crypto money and it's 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 new money in the sense that in many ways it's obviously this is not a case for 100 percent of the people but a lot of the people who found crypto money traditionally didn't really have money before or they were just tech people who um who got in early into crypto and saved their ETH or saved their Bitcoin or whatever. And now they're, they're rich. It's not generational wealth in many ways. In in many Uh cases, it's not, um, it's not like fund wealth or VC wealth. I mean, in some cases it is obviously, but um, a lot of collectors now are just people who love art and people who started collecting art two years ago in 2018, when a coldy and ferocious piece was maybe a few hundred dollars now they're worth millions you know now we see also with like bored apes and stuff like that and these prof and these pfp projects people are finding money and they're finding ways to be successful and they're not just taking it and running they're taking it and reinvesting it into the community mm-hmm. and that is one so incredibly important aspect of this if you collect something that you sell for a lot of money you're not going to go like leave crypto or leave nfts and go you know do whatever with it you're going to reinvest it in other projects that you see successful so we're kind of creating these like new vcs art vcs almost that aren't like traditionally venture capitalists and probably can't be categorized as such but there's money that is being earned through collecting and through creating and it's not the old world money it's this new beautiful world money that um yeah in many ways there's people coming in now that are like oh well you know, you got in crypto early, you're, you're so lucky of how much you have. And I'll be honest with you, man, like I've been in this since 2017. I've, that was, that's even later than most people have been in it. I've, we've all been through ups and downs. We held through hundred dollar ETH. We, we held through all of these ups and downs and we found ourselves here. We found ourselves here by fighting and, and by staying staying because we believed in all of this and now many of us are being rewarded for staying and many of us are you know giving back to the people that are getting in it now but there's a sentiment that we're all very lucky and i while i do believe that we are it's also perseverance and it's also staying with something that everyone is screaming at you as a failure and won't be successful and won't work and yet you look at it and you say i don't believe that i'm gonna stay in this and now those same people are coming back and like oh man i should have got in when like you told me to like three years ago i'm like yeah i mean you should have gotten in whenever you felt ready and now you feel ready and now you're here and that's what matters well and i think it, what's fascinating is you know the adoption of this as a platform for fine art is you know it's it is as early in the development of what it's going to become is as is possible you know the phenomenon of people's sale it really was somewhat staged and i i'm sure you understand what i mean by that um that not that it wasn't it wasn't a moment of defining value for people as much as it was a moment to project the value onto the space and there were a lot of uh, players and in large hands that had a vested interest in that moment um the you look at the history and you know you think right now that by collecting these pieces for three four five hundred eight hundred a thousand bucks i mean this is the equivalent of what was happening in you know uh, gertrude stein's salon you know in paris at the turn of the century when you were you could walk into her salon on a saturday night and pick up a modigliani for a couple hundred bucks yeah. and 
you know, or, uh, you know, the, the same thing, how, uh, you know, the Guggenheim Museum was built on the risk taking of Peggy Guggenheim collecting the modernists and, and bringing the, you know, ABEX movement to bear. And, and so, but when, you know, Pollock was making those early pieces and, you know, de Kooning before his rise to fame, all those, all those artists were selling to Peggy Guggenheim for pennies on the dollar. And mm -hmm. she just had a vision for the future. Now you take the, that as a time when there wasn't the exponential um, optics of the social media world where everything happens. Can, can, you can go from zero to 60 from the production of your work, the minting of your work to the exposure of your work in a matter of two days, you could have, you know, been in front of thousands of people. And, and that wasn't possible until you know, the last few years. I mean, it was possible going back to the beginning of the internet age, but it wasn't possible that it could then transfer to become a collectible, commodifiable art object in, the, in, a, in a traditional sense. That's so recent. So everybody I see that comes in here now, and I, I, the other day I was in a room of, of crypto enthusiasts on Twitter. I, I like to pop into them when I see certain speakers. And you know, I, I got called up to speak uh, and I was listening to their conversation about their timidity, their fear, their lack of awareness about the NFT. And there was almost a, a level of bitterness in the purists of the crypto investment world that so many of them saw the NFT craze as just this sort of nonsensical craze. And they didn't shift any allegiance and not even a small percentage of their portfolio to say, get in on the board apes or the crypto punks, you know, with the with the gen the generative projects, or now that same fear uh, is, has to be overcome about the one of one in fine art. Now, I'm not saying it has to be overcome at super rare because that's those collectors already existed, and they're taking those risks now. But there's a massive influx that's sitting on the sidelines. You think we have wealth in this space now? I would say if there's 5% of the crypto wealth has even said, oh, maybe I will get into this NFT, you know, craze. It ha they haven't, which is why it's still relatively small. It's why you can still collect work for 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0 0.5 ETH. And if you look out five years from now, you know, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0 0.5 ETH for a work uh, in this space, a work at Super Rare, work anywhere, foundation, maker's place, that isn't going to be possible. So I, I just would say to the world listening that if you are struggling with apprehension about what does it mean to collect a one-of-one one fine artist right now, it means that you are at the beginning of a legitimate revolution and an evolutionary step forward in what's possible in art. Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, it's called a leap of faith. It's, it's, it's not called steps of faith, right? In many yes. ways, it's, it's an investment. 0.3 is not a small amount of money. Um, it's it you you have to you have to see the vision of what we're all building. But every single day, we're making that vision clear and clear. And I think it's it, it was never truly risky if you look in the grand scheme of of the big picture. But of course, if you don't see what tomorrow brings what tomorrow is going to bring, of course, today is going to look risky to you. Of course, yesterday might seem like a fluke or it might seem like a one-off or it might seem like, oh, well, you were lucky yesterday, but what about tomorrow? And 
as we get older, I feel like we're less, it's not like I feel it's true. As we get older, we're less, we're more averse to risk and we're more um, cautious. And I talk to many friends who are in finance or in real estate and about half of them are so down with this are so into this, are so involved and, and, and ready to see what tomorrow is, maybe in part because they have, you know, don't have much excitement in their normal day-to-day jobs. And the others are so set in their ways that the old way is the right way because it's been the right way for so long. It's, it's, not, about, it's not about being afraid of change necessarily, I, I, I don't think. I think it's about being afraid to take a risk when you have such a sure thing right in front of you. And that sure thing, I, I don't know how to explain it to people, but to get them to understand, but the old world, just because it's worked doesn't mean it's going to keep working forever. And we're consistently showing you every single day that there's a new way to do things, a new way of collecting art, a new way of creating a new way of decentralized finance, a new way of, of everything it, that's, that's virtual of social media, of, identity and i mean the list goes on forever but it there are we're building something and there's so many people building it together that i really we often talk about banks being too big to fail i truly believe that this is becoming and has probably already become too big to fail i mean you you would have to you'd have i don't know what you would i don't even know what you would have to do to get this entire thing to fail there's so much decentralized finance. There's so much money in DeFi. There's so much money in NFTs. Really, I mean, at the end of the day, art is really only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. But every single day, we're seeing that more and more people are willing to pay more and more for what's being created today and yesterday and two days ago and three years ago and probably what will be created tomorrow. So to to look at this and say it's a fluke or to look at this and say it's not real or it, it's going to, it's a bubble that's going to burst. I feel like to not see what's going on today and not see what has gone on for the past several years and to consider it a bubble and a fluke, I think is really just un- undercutting yourself and undermining what your future can look like. Because I'm not going to, I hate, I really don't like the people who say, oh, we'll have fun staying poor or like, like, oh, it's, you know, you're probably just going to get left behind. Nah, man, it's not really about that. It's about not convincing people, but showing people the way and showing people through your actions and what you're doing in your own life, that there is possibility for everybody else here as well. And that's, that's also part of what I'm trying to do is creating the storyline and the story arc of this entire world that will tell people today, tomorrow, and sometime in the future that this is a revolution that's going on right now. And to be a part of it in any small way, any medium way, any big way is more than enough. You don't need to take huge risks to be a part of crypto and NFTs and crypto art. You don't need to throw all of your money at it. Collect one work, find a, find a, a painting that you like, a digital 3D work. I don't know. As long as you're talking to people as long as you're not discounting it because you're so wrapped up in the value of of this past world that we're still living in i think you're going to win i think people are going to win even if they even if they take very small bites of this world um but yeah it's 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 interesting how do you convince somebody who's so set in their ways to to change those ways 
Like it's a, a question as old as time. How do you teach an old dog new tricks? Mm. Well, and I, there's also the, the, there's a, a lot of other interesting perspectives to consider. So you have this liberatory economic model in DeFi and, and crypto that has already bared out. You already have the institutional um, investment in it. It, it is all, already the bane of you know, every uh, nation state's existence. Yes. Uh, the quandary of the future of finance is, you know, it, it's it's a, it's an illusory quandary. It's here. It's not going anywhere. Not a bubble. It, it is. It may have growing pains for 50 years, but the transition is set. It's in lockstep with a different future. And in that context of uh, this financial shift, paradigm shift in, in economics, what has always been um a social currency that is art art is is fundamentally sound as an investment it has outpaced the stock market historically forever it is it it art going back 50,000 years you know to the cave walls at Lascaux um as the disseminator of culture and um you know uh, the education of future generations so I like to I like to point out that in this whole in the whole um, under the whole umbrella of the radical transformation of economical you know economic liberty right in the crypto space you now have this subculture where art is is filling out even more so and think about it this way as a social currency right if you collect something right now what is that piece going to look like at the, at the birth of a movement? What is that piece going to look like as a valuable collectible in 25 years when you're buying art in the same marketplaces, wherever they go, however they evolve, and you're buying a piece that is put on auction that came out in 2021? What does that look like to anybody with a half a sense of how history has worked, has always worked and has never failed. You can buy an obscure, you know, 19th century print by a student of a master and you're going to pay tens of thousands of dollars for it at auction because of their relationship to that master in that time and place, right? So even if you're collecting and you don't know what is imminently going to become you know, what's hanging in MoMA in 30 years, you are still participating in an aggressive, highly intense, educated, creative, aesthetically brave, aesthetically unique, aesthetically interesting, transformative time. You are getting in at the ground at a time when, again, Gertrude Stein is peddling Modigliani and Picasso and Matisse for pennies on the dollar. That's where you're at right now. And we've already, we already have the the support of the uh, of the institutions the largest institutions Sotheby you know with the, with the work of uh, Fuocious and in you know the the all of these early manifestations of generative art and you know you have major players like Damien Hirst coming in you've got Banks who came in you, the, the, the list goes on and on and on and on so there is almost for me anyway I'd see no I see zero risk. There's no, for me, and I, I'm, not, I'm not giving it financial advice, but as, a, as somebody who is a student of art and art history and a crypto enthusiast, 
And having watched this entire thing since 2011, I don't see any risk in sticking your toe in the water and getting to know what's going on. And like you said, bite off just a little bit of history. Even if it's just like, okay, I'm not prepared to, you know, sell my, uh, you know, mortgage, uh, take out a second mortgage on my house so I can, you know, run in and buy a board ape. But <laughs> exactly. Right. You don't have to do that. There, <laughs> you can pick up brilliant, brilliant art every day across four or five different platforms. You can pick up brilliant art on any day of the week. I mean, I, just as a, for instance, you know, there's an artist that I love and I collect, uh, Pink's. She's a fantastic artist. And I mean, there's so many. I, I hate the name drop because some of my friends are going to be mad. But, you know, her life story, and I won't even go into who, but, you know, she has a, she has a, a, a famous mother in the fashion industry, right? But she doesn't talk about that. And, and yet, she, you know that she grew up in, in a world surrounded by art. You know that her whole life is dedicated to art. And that she was groomed to be an artist. And if you get in the spaces as a would-be collector, you will hear the life stories of every artist with any interest in selling. So if you are concerned, go spend a couple of months in the spaces hearing the artist's stories. Get to know their visions. You know, that there's so many ways of skinning this cat. But like living in fear of dipping your toe in the water is a fool's game, in my opinion. I agree. I, I do want to say something to like the board ape um, mentality of collecting 10k projects. I think that there's this, I, I feel like people have seen the success of board apes and punks and a few other um, PFP projects. And, and they've dived in and kind of exploited the people who have missed out on board apes or who have missed out on punks and their kind of their point of entry is is way lower at this point um every single day there's multiple 10k projects every single day i see several new projects come up and this isn't even like I'm, I'm exaggerating i'm not exaggerating at all there are multiple projects every single day that come out that are like seven eight nine ten twenty four twenty five a hundred k and Many of them have good intentions, and I believe that the ones that do have good intentions will 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 stay the course. But a little, you know, tiny words of caution: there will always be value in one of one art. I believe, and this whole 10k project is great. The, all these 10k projects are great, but I don't want it to undervalue and undercut the value of one of one art. And that's not to say that you can't collect both. I think you should collect whatever you want. Don't collect things that you don't want. The last thing you want to do is look at your OpenSea account or look at your collection and say, man, I really hate half the stuff that I have in here. Like, that's the last thing you want to do. Collect what you want to collect. Do your best to find the artists that are just kind of starting out. Do your best to do your research because the early bird gets the worm in every single case, unless there are no worms, but there's so many worms here. There's so oh. many, like, it doesn't take, it doesn't take someone with an art history background to know what they like to look at. Like, oh, if you collect sure. something that you hate because you think it's going to go up in value, then it doesn't. And you're like, well, now I'm stuck with this, this, 
you know, exactly. And we all know what virtuosity looks like, right? I mean, if if you have a gauge, just let that be your gauge where you see virtuosity in the creation of a work, then that's your estimation of virtuosity. That's going to make you happy, right? And whatever the work is in every work, every ism, every movement, every style of aesthetic has behind it a, 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 a plethora or a lack thereof of virtuosity. So where you connect to something as being um, a masterful contribution in the style that you're looking at, that's something that you should just feel comfortable buying or, or bidding on, right? Because you're always going to appreciate it, that yeah. you feel it's masterful. And that's what I think for me, when I collect, I collect based on that gut feeling of mastery, that they've mastered their craft and that there's an authentic voice that's risen out of the ashes of the work they had to put in. And, and, and when you feel that connection to a work, it really is the strongest gauge of, of art, that, that gut connection to mastery. And if you believe it's masterful, it is masterful. Um, it, will, it will remain masterful to you, which will give you confidence holding it. If you, if you buy something based on the direction of a market influence, you are beholden to the market's play and uh, the rise and the fall and the bubble effect. And I want to add something about generative projects since you brought that up. People don't quite realize, and I've had this conversation in many spaces, that the, the generative, the success of the board apes and the crypto punks in particular, they have slightly different reasons for their success, but they're both beholden of Andy Warhol. And I'll explain why. The idea of variations on a theme is one of the dominant characteristics of the late modern into the contemporary period. As we moved into like uh, postmodern and whatnot, you start to see a break from that. But the idea of value in the traditional art market and in the traditional art houses, they're still wildly in love with Warhol and his impact on the art market in the in the 90s. And there, there, there's a really intelligent reference to Warhol in the generative projects. What do I mean by that? Variations on a theme was Warhol, right? And what did you get in Warhol uh, in variations on a theme? You had the screen print. And the thing about a screen printing process is that even if you were to use the same color palette to do a series of, say, 10 or a series of 50, the way in which screen printing works is that every piece will have aberrations, unique aberrations. And over the course of uh, the life of a, of a series, of a suite by Warhol, what you've seen was that the variations on the theme, right down to and including those aberrations that were caused by the, sprint, the printmaking process itself, have become detail, details that in, uh, increase the rarity of works and therefore increase the value. So that in a nutshell is the paradigm that the art world looked at, which has pop aesthetic, right? Both the bored apes, right? And the crypto punks. Uh, they're, they're sort of crude and basic in, in, in their aesthetic, right? Both of them in their own way are basically just variations on a theme. So why do I say that? Because I understand that the house flipping mentality 
of every day, two to three new generative projects coming in is, is it's like a pure uh, gold rush mentality. Like, like get hot on the drop in the moment, get them out, move them um, and hope for the best. Right. But what do we, when we go back throughout his, throughout our history, and I know you like to say we're liberated from our history, but again, what's, what's going to matter and has already proven to matter is first come first serve and the board apes and the crypto punks were the groundbreakers that brought a, uh, um, a very notable art historical sensibility to their projects. Uh, and I believe that they knew they were as well. I don't think this was um, a, a mistake. And I think that you're seeing the, re the reaction to being first in the, in, the, in the scene and to do something first matters because everything that comes after it is just not original. There's nothing authentic about, honestly, anything that comes after, um, in my humble opinion, that those early generative projects were the groundbreaking projects. So enter at your own risk after those two. That's just my sensibility on it. I definitely think that, um, you know, while, while I agree in part, I think that a lot of the projects that are going to be successful outside of those two are ones that bring new, new aspects of community building that bring new aspects of charity that bring new aspects of um funding collectors in whether it's through airdrops or um bonus features or you know what what yeah. have you so i think yeah. that it's there's now this race to kind of one up what another project what earlier projects have done um below the surface for collectors for the community as a whole for you know influencing the next project that will come out i've seen countless generative projects that are literally just images generated for ten thousand of them and i'll be honest with you some of them look cool some of them don't some of them are have really good intentions some of them don't i i i cannot stress enough that yes i do agree that it's in many ways the gold russian people are seeing you know uh green money signs across their eyes there will always be a place for one of one art. And that is truly where I think your safest bet will be. Maybe the artists themselves won't get big for a few years, or, you know, maybe they won't um, sell as much as a bored ape. Like it's, it's not what it's about. Right. I mean, there's plenty of money to be made in crypto. It doesn't need to be rushed after with projects and with art. You don't need to find your your next paycheck or your next car or your next house in a single piece of artwork because that's not really what it's about, right? Um, not at all. No. Not at all. And uh, to to the point that you were saying earlier about um, about curation and about how it's it really is about the art, um, about finding like those those early works. And the finding virtuosity and finding you know the masterworks i feel like that's what the mission of super rare has always been i feel like that's why our curation process is as tight and as strict as it is it's because we don't want to necessarily just bring everybody on because it doesn't service collectors it doesn't service the artists it doesn't service the community as a whole we saw with other platforms that kind of got big names whether they're famous people that have never made art and they're trying to do nfts and many of those flopped right many of those just weren't successful um many of them exploited the artists who actually made the artwork that was being sold um 
but at the end of the day, I feel like anybody can go on super rare and find an artwork that they like and be confident that it's from an artist that has a very good future, a very bright future ahead of them. And right. of course there's flukes here and there, but the majority of the work that's on super rare, I truly believe will, if collected benefit you in the future as a collector, as a, as an artist, whatever. Well, and it, a lot of it has to do with vetting process because one of the determining factors of longevity Obviously, one of the determining factors of success for art as a collectible is the longevity of the commitment of the artist. So, you know, what if if, what maybe the most difficult and this is why I say it's important to do your research, even when collecting art is to, to try to dig up the level of conviction to, you know, process and and what is it to them? Um, and, and so I know the you as a team. Are, are making that process sort of systemic, right? You're vetting these artists through your application process. And I, I would guess that it's not just the shiny, uh, fidgety, you know, look of the work that you say, yes, you can come on Super Rare. That it's probably also has to do with a sense of conviction to, the, to their project that you gain from their, the interview process. And, um, you know, I think that's really, really important because there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of uh, people that are like, you, like you said earlier, you, you know, they're picking up the, the paintbrush, so to speak, uh, just to get in on it. Right. And they maybe don't have a lifetime of investment in an artistic project. They maybe they are literally just running into the gold, Like it's the gold rush. There's that on the art, on the artist side too. So what does it mean to be an artist? Well, we can say that if you make art, you're an artist, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a commodifiable and collectible, a long-term uh, project. Uh, so there's that too, which I, I appreciate that about Super Rare, which is one of the reasons I've been very excited to, to speak with you today is because I think you, you have demonstrated as a company an, an, an interest in vetting your artists to the extent that it, you can be confident as a collector there that their commitment to their life project is solid. Totally agree. And I think what we have coming up next with spaces is going to be even bigger for that, basically decentralizing the curation process in a lot of ways. Um, spaces are basically um, self-sovereign galleries that people can find artists themselves and sell them on their storefront, so to speak. Um, and to get a space, there's this uh, process that we created called Space Race. And it's essentially like a voting mechanism to have the community of rare holders, which is our social token, um, curation token. Um, mm -hmm. And by voting for the spaces and the proposals that come out every two weeks, um, the ones that win will have a storefront on Super Rare and be able and will be able to curate their own work. So I think that's, you know, one of the most exciting aspects of the Super Rare 2.0 that we've just uh, launched that will allow other people to curate their own salons and their own galleries and their own um, and their own virtual museum, so to speak. And I, I think, I think as we build this even more, we're going to see a very, very beautiful revolution in and, of, in and of the revolution itself of curation. I feel like everyone who's become an artist and a collector will find themselves as a, they're becoming curators now. Um, 
that excites me. I, I think I have at this point probably 200, 250 works I've collected. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a museum. I mean, I'm probably going to end up donating them to a museum. Uh, but the idea of being able to curate in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a notable and respectable way is definitely a great step forward. And I, I'm 100% behind you that, you know, this taking back the power of curation from, you know, um, from the collect. Uh, from the, the the takeover by the collector is super important. It's super, super important. We don't need billionaires defining what is art ever again. We just don't. I really, I, I can't agree more. Before we run out of time, I have a couple of questions for you, Nathan. I, I was wondering about uh, interoperability. Uh, maybe six months out, a year out, you know, is, is ETH always going to be the main one? People talk about gas fees. And also earlier on, you mentioned metaverses. What do you or what is Super Rare see playing out with the metaverses? Yeah, when it comes to interoperability, I can't really speak to any of that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, that's not really, I'm not on that team. I know there's <laughs> talk of all this stuff. We all talk about it all the time. Everybody always talks about interoperability and blockchain in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope, hopefully we see it, you know, industry-wide in the near future. Um, uh, but when it comes to super, I, I can't speak to any of that specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, the metaverse world, I think, you know, I, I talk to Coldy often and he's a full believer of the metaverse and this virtual, um, these virtual galleries and experiencing art in a, in a virtual space. And, I don't know what it'll take. I don't know if it'll take AR glasses. I don't know if it'll take a VR headset in everybody's home. I don't know if it'll take just this level of mental adoption to get to view art in the virtual world a similar way as people do in the in the physical world. But I know that it's coming. I can't say for sure what it's going to look like because I just don't know. Um, but yeah, it's 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 very exciting. We've already seen like crypto voxels, decentraland, sandbox. We've seen this all of all of like the foundation of what we'll need when it eventually gets there already being built. And that's that's truly that's where it starts, right? It all has to start somewhere. And when I was at Consensus in 2017, a lot, a lot of the projects that were being built were Looking back on them, they were pipe dreams, but I see so many projects then that weren't successful um, through 2018 and 2019 that would have a perfect fit today and would probably thrive today. And Super Air started in 2018 and they stuck through it. And even when nobody was caring about what they were talking about at like at conferences, they still stuck with it. They got you know, the founders found side jobs, they were doing web design stuff, and they were building super rare at night. And that perseverance was what made it is what it what it is today. And I feel like we're seeing that happening in real time with this, with the metaverse and the virtual reality stuff and these virtual galleries. And that's a whole nother level of tomorrow that I can't even fully wrap my head around today. You know, I want to bring up, um, something that I think is fascinating that a project that I'm working on right now, since we're talking about the metaverses and I want to invite you also. Uh, so I got into a project of developing a suite for Afghanistan and the freedom of women. And uh, that led me to a partnership with an NGO uh, called, and I've been working with now for about a month and I've, 
I have a team of people that are working with me on on the event. But out of the creation of the Afghanistan suite, there, by my art process, there were a couple hundred studies. And I donated 40 of the studies to the organization. And now this has become an event that's going to enter the metaverse, which is why I wanted to, to, to bring it up. The metaverse is at the Insomnium uh, space, uh, Block Museum. He's actually building out a museum that's going to be about the size of MoMA uh, in the metaverse that's being designed specifically to host this event. And it's gonna be fascinating. The event is gonna be live uh, where everybody is going to be able to enter the museum, peruse the, the 40 works donated to the organization. Uh, we're going to have uh, uh, multiple activists uh, speaking at the event on a stage in VR and uh, then multiple poetesses, uh, women from the region primarily uh, reading work in support of the women of Afghanistan. And then at some point, there's a live auction that will begin and that auction will go live in the museum. Uh, and so the, the we're looking probably, hopefully, we're looking to raise somewhere in the neighborhood of about uh, 10 to 30 ETH uh, from, from the auction. And the whole thing is gonna be live in the metaverse. So if you're free on Sunday, uh, the 19th, a week from tomorrow, from 9.30 till 12.30. Uh, the, it's going to be a, a real, I think, a precedent-setting uh, philanthropic uh, event in the metaverse through coordination with organizations on the ground in Afghanistan. And it, it's just the complexity level and the amount of community participation has been beautiful. And 100% uh, of the proceeds from the auction, they're literally minting the collection themselves. So it's like transparency. It, it, and, and I think it's setting a precedent for how the NFT space can, can participate in philanthropic endeavors. Send me uh, an invite for it. I'm, I'm traveling that day from London back to LA. Uh, okay. I have, I have a pretty long layover in Istanbul, so I might have time while I'm there to do it, but... I'll, you know, send me the, the time on my calendar and I'll, uh, I'll see if it lines up. And if I'm not on a, literally on a plane, I'm a hundred percent down. Perfect. I'd love to have you there. You'll see yourself walking around in the space. It's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah I love yeah, it. Yeah. It's just wonderful. Uh, let me ask you a question. So with, with that type of charity and crypto, how is that money delivered to, and, and how is it used then in Afghanistan for the women of Afghanistan? Is it, is it a, like a... Right. So this organization is uh, they're a ground level organization in Afghanistan. What they do is, uh, you know, they try to um, protect and work with delivering safety measures for women uh, in Afghanistan. So they're the level of like the woman who I'm in contact with, the founder of the organization, uh, she has a team of dozens of people on the ground in Afghanistan. It's a highly sensitive um, operation. So like, you know, I have social media obligations in the, in the language that I utilize to talk about the project. Um, just because even the, you know, how we talk about what we're doing in, in is actually, um, there's a threat matrix for that organization on the ground. So it's, it's really interesting, powerful, disturbing, but with this organization, you know, they're on the ground, they're doing that work of, you know, feeding, clothing, relocating, 
you know, uh, women in that threat matrix. And the way in which it works is, you know, so I'm, I'm giving them a collection through a Google Drive. That Google Drive, through my uh, partnership, is going to be minted by the organization at OpenSea that's going to then, you know, be uh, articulated for what the collection is, you know, in the, in the banner and everything. It'll be a one-time event uh, collection so that the wallet is controlled by the organization. And then that money is used directly on the ground in Afghanistan. So it's not like the way in which you would want to participate in anything philanthropic and it's a problem in the space because anybody can say, uh, I'm going to buy this and I will donate 50% of the proceeds to X, totally. right? But there's traditionally, there's no guarantee that that's happened, right? I mean, I suppose you can forensically follow the wallet, but that's not how it works at the, at the institutional level. I'm, I'm trying to work with one of the more high profile, highly effective, you know, organizations in Afghanistan. And to do that, I needed to make sure that it was 100% transparent. So we developed a backdoor uh, relationship to have them receive mint and take the full collection from the auction night. Uh, so it, it will never, it never touches my, it never touches my wallet. It's straight auction for, for the organization. Amazing dude. I feel like that type of, that type of, um, charity is is the true charity like i i don't i don't really donate it like grocery stores and stuff like that because a lot of that charity goes to administration fees it goes honestly some places that have the boxes to put like your change in sometimes the employees use that money like in in 2018 when i was at consensus i was um i did this documentary in manila about bringing this project bounties to the to like do beach cleanups and give the actual money right into the hands of the people doing the work. And that's, that's just one of, of countless aspects of crypto that I'm so fascinated with. And one of the main reasons why I even started with this first, it was music. Then it was like the, the charitable aspect. Now it's art. And I mean, obviously I care about all of it still. Um, But yeah, man, it's, it's fascinating stuff, really All, all of the new ways to bring money, to true charity to the organizations that need it and can use it is we're changing. Right. That's a revolution in, in and of itself too. Well, and just think about the ability for me to hand over a collection of 40 works for NFT yep. uh, minting to an organization where they then can receive 100% of the proceeds of the auction, exactly. which now the auction is going to be uh, build on their part internationally, you know, through through uh, news networks and whatnot. They're bringing their uh, foundational don their their donor uh, their donor base is actually going to be participating in the auction. And then I have my entire side as far as the crypto space is concerned, the NFT space. And then we have you know working with the museum, uh, uh, the Block Museum, and their. A vested interest. I mean, the 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 founder of the Block Museum literally, I you know had to um, build a larger museum than he was currently working out of just to facilitate the event, and that was in his way a massive contribution to the event. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars invested to build the museum specifically to make this event go off without a hitch. 
Wow. So, yeah. And, and, and it's just fascinating to me that you can, I, I was able to build the Google Drive, give access to that Google Drive, and now 100% transparent. And part of the research process, I worked with a woman out of, that was originally from Kurdistan uh, in Iraq. I spoke with a woman who uh, grew up in Iran. So my research for the project was working with women from the region who, you know, kind of came up under the, the, the you know, similar uh, tyrannies and, and, and manners of oppression. And whether they're sort of next generation, they have next generation liberation. One now lives in the U.S., the other lives in uh, London, but they're, you know, like they grew up in those environments, even though they're free now. So their contribution to the dialogue that developed this project over like the last seven weeks has been instrumental. And so when I was looking for the, the organization to donate to, I mean, I have many opportunities. And I, I worked with uh, a woman named Koshi Selassie. Uh, the Kurt, she's from or the woman from Kurdistan who now lives in London. And she was able to uh, narrow down through all of her. She's a, so, a very much a social justice advocate, and she focuses primarily on freedom uh, for women in the region. She b- helped me analyze every one of these organizations and b- narrow it down to the, mo- the one that was most effective and most transparent. So again, just being in this social media sphere where we can gain access to every kind of talent, intelligence, and awareness that we need to do research and to build out projects that can make a difference, like that's huge, you know? I am curious uh, if Super Rare has any like future plans uh, for a philanthropic component or if they're currently employing any sort of philanthropic uh, component to benefit social justice or mental health awareness or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, for individual artists that kind of put work out that's in that realm and they ask us to contribute, we usually give um, give the the marketplace fees that we would traditionally get. We just give straight to the um, straight to the cause itself instead of taking them. Um, and that was before the DAO was launched. So, uh, with the DAO being launched, those dis- I, I believe those types of decisions will be left up to the DAO and rare holders and, and people who are who are um, vote on those proposals. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that could grow if you know tenfold if if people want it and people vote for it. Excellent, good to know. I'm going to have to look into this the the DAO component of what you guys are doing over there. It's it's definitely it's definitely I I fully believe it's going to change. Um, the the industry and the game entirely i mean we'll have to wait and see obviously but um everything that i've seen us building has been nothing but positive and nothing but um with the future of all of this in mind wonderful well is there um, before we uh we close uh, are there any topics that uh, you wanted you want to bring up that we haven't perhaps touched on um, I, I brought up spaces. We're going to be launching that um, relatively soon. And um, I know, uh, so basically you need to hold the curation token to be able to vote. And the whole aspects, the whole aspect of voting and governance is, is really important. So we're working on finding ways to um, educate the, the industry as a whole on what it means to vote on a DAO and what, what a DAO means. So that's, that's essentially what the next video project I'm working on is. 
um, explaining what a DAO is and explaining how voting with rare works and, and all that. So that, that'll be coming out. Okay, great. Well, how about when you get to that point, let's do another show where you can break it all down and and thoroughly articulate, you know, that stuff that's, that's in, in process, but isn't ready yet. Absolutely. I'm going to London today. It's crazy. Great. Stop by shortage and get some pictures of uh, how the walls have changed. Yes, I definitely will. I'm going to Oxford too. So I'm basically meeting up everywhere I go. I I try to meet up with a bunch of super rare artists and, and collectors and get them on camera for, you know, historical documentation like I did in Paris. Um, So that's part of the reason why I'm going and I'm already have like a bunch of artists that are down to meet up. So I'm very excited. What a lifestyle, man. How exciting. It's so crazy. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a dream job, man. Literally is, dude. Every I I I feel like I've taken too many blue pills, and I might just be like in the matrix, asleep. Hey, you're in the matrix. Like perfect life. I'm, I'm not there with you, so <laughs> <laughs> I am I am online with you in the matrix. This is great. Yes, that's exactly right. I feel like everybody can can reach this. I I don't. I feel like I put so much pressure on myself to find what I was meant to do, and when I finally said, you know what. I'm going to ask for the job that I want. And if I get it, I get it, but I'm not going to take some bullshit job anymore. Cause I know I'm not going to be happy. I've done it too many times. And when it came to applying to super rare, my interviews, my three interviews that I had were basically me just spewing all my beliefs on crypto art and, and, and blockchain and what I wanted to do. And they were like, okay, sounds good. And I was like, what you mean being honest with myself and everybody around me actually worked. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, we're in the age of authenticity. I think that authenticity matters now more than it has in decades and decades and decades. And and everybody wants to be authentic. And think about all of the, the, the populations of oppressed people and marginalized people that their authenticity has been oppressed. So yeah. here we are in this age of authenticity where you can be you know, a trans, non-binary, African-American woman and be authentic, your authentic self in this sphere. And that matters, man. And I think that's what we're seeing is the zeitgeist of authenticity. It's so beautiful. So powerful. I agree more. I'm so excited about it. Hell yeah. Beautiful, guys. I'm going to run. I got to finish packing. But thank you so much again. And uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Indeed. Take care, Nathan. Yeah, have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.